0: Let's turn in God's word today to 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, let's hear the word of God, reading of course from the authorised version. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desire the good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy, of filthy looker, but patient. Not a brawler, not covetous. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not an office, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy liquor, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless, Even so must their wives be grieved, not slanderous, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their houses and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing. This reading of His own precious and infallible Word. Now, my text this morning is taken from First Peter chapter, or First Timothy rather, chapter three, verse fifteen. It reads as follows: "But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth." I am entitled this message today the genius of Presbyterian church government. Now, as I've announced in a few weeks' time, the congregational membership of this church will meet together for the purpose of electing two additional elders and electing another committee. Our election date is set for the 8th of March. It's a Wednesday night. Do plan to attend. Now already, we're told that the current session and committee, that elections to office can be a very blessed experience, a time when God's people are filled with a sense of unity and purpose. And remember, we read in Psalm 133, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It says in the scripture, for there the Lord commandeth the blessing, even life forevermore. And there can be, even in the midst of an election time, an experimental tasting of the blessing of the Lord. So so that's one experience, and I've already told that to the current session and committee. An election, on the other hand, can be a very bitter, divisive experience. And the stories of even local church history is littered with, Horror story after horror story of how things can go wrong in church elections and real breaches are caused and damage done to the name of Christ and the well-being of his church. So in light of our forthcoming election, I'm going to preach on the subject of serving the Lord as an office-bearer in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, it's my intention to spend this week and the two following Lord's Day mornings on this subject. Now, rather than jump straight in, indeed, with the office of the elder or the office of the deacon, I'm going to set forth what I believe can rightly be described as the genius of Presbyterian church government. I'm going to use this text, thinking of these words, that thou mayest know how thou ought to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Here's a text that underlines the importance of the church, and it mentions the word house, it mentions the living God, it mentions the pillar, it mentions the foundation. Three things this morning. One, the scripturalness of Presbyterian church government. If you think of these words, Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is the pastor, the teaching elder of the church at Ephesus. He has many things to contend with. One of the things that he has to contend with, is that there's some in the church of Ephesus who despise him. Imagine that, despising the minister because of his youth. And Paul writes, let no man despise thy youth. He encourages him to be an example to them. And it's hard to believe that there's men in the church with despise and have no respect for and no confidence in the man that God has gifted them to be their pastor. But it happens. And it happened in Timothy's day. And Paul is writing to encourage and, and help young Timothy. So do you think of Timothy laboring and pastoring there in Ephesus? And Paul writes and he says that thou mayest know how thou thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Now, think of the meeting for public worship. There can be and is no doubt that it's God's will that his people meet together for public worship, especially on the Lord's day, but also at other times throughout the week midweek and weekend services. Now that doctrine, the meeting for public worship is fundamental and basic to the word of God. God's people must meet together every week to worship God and to worship God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in a very public fashion. Remember what we read in John 4 and 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him high in spirit and in truth. The psalmist talked about worshiping God in the beauty of holiness. Now, every week, we assemble here for worship, and in that worship, we offer the sacrifice of praise, The Bible calls us, praise ye the Lord. We're called to praise him. It's important. That's why we sing the Psalms, sometimes from the paraphrase. That's why we have a hymn book section uh, called, for want of a better term, the hymns of Zion. And we do it individually. We stand to sing. And we do it collectively as a local congregation. And that, that is part of our worship. And not only that, but we offer the sacrifice of prayer. We have a prayer of thanksgiving to start the service, asking God for his presence and help. And then we have a prayer of supplication, known as the offering prayer or or the intercessory prayer. And we pray for a number of individuals and pray for a number of things. And that's very important. And you say amen, even if you don't do it out loud, you, you say it in your heart. We also gather here to preach the word Second Timothy chapter four verses one and two uh, tells us this: I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus, who shall judge the quick and the dead, that his appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season; reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. And there has to be a listening to the word of God, and there has to be a learning from the word of God, and there has to be a leaning on the word of God, and there has to be a, a living out of the word of God. That's all very important. And then, of course, in the service, we present ourselves, our hearts. We give of our tithe. We give of our talent. We're we're trusting the Lord. There's also the performance of the sacraments. Now, why do we do that? Because the Bible tells us where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. Christ is present here. Matthew 18, verse 20. And over in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter um, 10 and verse 25, uh, Paul exhorted the Hebrew Christians in this wise: Hebrews 10 and 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. You see, public worship is ordained for God. And there's a meeting for the public worship. I was asked the question not so long ago: Should we go to church? And the answer is yes. Why? Because public worshippers are the end of God. Here's two references in the New Testament: Matthew 18, verse 20; Hebrews 10, and verse 25. You see, in that question, young people, should you go to church? It all comes down to whose voice you're going to listen to: the voice of the atheist, the voice of the agnostic the voice of the evolutionist, you see, they would say no. Why? Because they don't believe that God exists. Their mindset is God is not real. The psalmist said the fool have said in his heart there is no God and these are atheistic fools, agnostic fools, evolutionist fools. The Bible isn't full of errors. You see, I want to ask who made the atheist? And the agnostic and the evolutionist, who made them an authority over the children of men? On what basis do they offer such advice? On what basis do they pronounce such foolish counsel? Are they pretending to be wiser than God? Are they saying that mankind should set aside the truth of God's word? God's word stands forever. It is forever settled to- settled in heaven no you should listen to god's voice you should listen to the voice of the lord jesus and this is what he said where two or three are gathered together in my name even the smallest number of two and three i am in the midst and paul's advice if we listen to him as a holy apostle inspired by the spirit of god Not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Even in the first century, some had left off attending the house of God on the day of God. And you know, sadly in Northern Ireland, we have to plead with people to attend the house of God on the day of God. To worship the living and the true God and to attend to the word of God. You see, here's the problem that's surrounding our wee province. Many people, I'd say, from the Protestant community, loyalist community, unionist community, have stopped attending the house of God on the day of God. And I want to say this morning that we have to call them to repent. We've got to call them to return. Repent of this sin, this evil. That This is wickedness. Go into the house of God and call on God to have mercy upon you. Many are listening to the foolish voice of the atheist, the agnostic, and the evolutionist. Should we go to church now? Well, let's not bother. You see, it's not cool to be seen to be going. But we need to come back to this, something that's fundamental. Public worship is ordained of God. And as creatures who are dependent on God, for in him we move and live in a being, we should come on the day of God and present ourselves before the Lord. And, and learn about who he is and learn about our sinfulness. And repent of that sin and, and seek to get right with God. And then of course there's some foolish voices among the saints. Even in the church. Among the professing sea of people. Don't be going to hear him preach. He's too long winded. I only preach for about 35 minutes if you actually follow the time. So I don't think I'm long-winded. I'm certainly not keeping you here preaching for an hour as the manner of some may be. But the problem with those that saying, don't go to hear him because he's too long-winded, those individuals, their heart may not be right in the sight of God. They, those are individuals who may not be gospel greedy. They may be happy with a light bite. And what amazes me is this. They could sit and watch the television for an hour and a half or two. They can go to a concert two or three hours they could go to a football game I don't know how long it lasts It lasts a, a, at least two hours A rugby game You see fundamentally What they're not considering when they say these things is, is my heart right in the sight of God Am I saying it in the right attitude See I've heard others say but You have to dress up to go to the Free Presbyterian Church You don't necessarily have to dress up to go That's a personal choice but remember, as you come, you're presenting yourself before the Lord. Suppose you got an invite to meet uh, King Charles. Well, there would be a protocol. What to wear, what not to wear. And you're coming into the presence of the King of Kings. You're going to be taken up with a the theme, worthy as the lamb. What about hats? Oh, I couldn't go there because it forced me to wear a hat. Well, we don't force people to wear hats. But listen to this, if you're going to Royal Ascot... Or you were going into a a function where the king is present. Or you're going to a wedding. Well, you wouldn't dream. You you, you would follow the protocol. You you would say, well, if they require me to wear head covering, then then I'll wear it at the wedding. I'll wear it at royal asking. I'll wear it in the king's presence. You see, it comes back to this. Is your heart right in the sight of God? And in Acts chapter 8, remember Peter said to Simon Magus, thy heart is not right in the sight of God. And just as the atheist heart is not right and the agnostic, many of God's people who foolishly say these things about public ordained worship, the reality is that their individual heart is not right in the sight of God. Many people say, well, I can't find a preacher that preaches the gospel. Well, my advice would be find one that does. We, we try here to be faithful to the blood and the book. I, I, I preach here every Sunday knowing that I'm accountable before the Lord. And there's a day coming that I too will give an account for every sermon, for every service, for every Sabbath day. See, you've got to think about the meeting for public worship. In the scripturalness of Presbyterian government, there's a meeting for public worship. Could I tell you something else very quickly think of the manner of public worship you see I have no doubt that the bible teaches that when churches and congregations come together for public worship everything has to be done decently and in order first Corinthians chapter 14 and in the verse 40 and you think of the chaos and the problems that were there in the Corinthian church Paul writing to that church said, 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 40, he says, let all things be done decently and in order. And here's Paul writing to Timothy, that thou mightest know how thou, as the pastor, ought to behave thyself in the house of God. You see, there has to be order in the house of God. So yes, public worship is ordained of God, but there has to be order in the house of God. And God's will is that there's a teaching elder or elders over the house of God. There may be more than one called a plurality of elders. It's God's will that there's a number of ruling elders over the house of God. And those elders are chosen and ordained To carry out the spiritual government And oversight of the congregation And you see, also in regard to church offices The Bible speaks about deacons Chosen and appointed to help take care Of the financial and material aspects of the life And witness of the church And then when we think about the congregation You have got men, you have got wives And you have children if you turn over there to Acts chapter 21 and you read what happened in Tyre, Acts chapter 21, and it says, And finding disciples, this is at Tyre, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. Verse 5 And when we had accomplished those days, we departed and went our way, and they, that's a reference to the disciples with wives and they all brought us on our way with wives and children till we were out of the city and we kneeled down on the shore and prayed a prayer meeting on the shore and the wives and the children and the disciples were all present along with the apostles you see that's all part of the congregation coming together Not only think of the scripturalness of Presbyterian church government, but let's think of the specifics of Presbyterian church government. You see, there are at least three different ways the church government can be exercised. One, it could be controlled by a dictatorial clerical hierarchy, very autocratic, known as the pyramid structure. You think of Roman Catholicism, all decisions made by the Pope, handed down to the cardinals, the archbishop, then the bishops, then the canon, then the priest. So the people have very little say. What goes on in the life of the parish? It's it's ruled from the top. People have no say regarding church appointments. Church is ruled by uh, men at the top in a very dictatorial fashion. That's true of Roman Catholicism. It's true of the Anglican Church. And because of this method... of church government, the church can be bereft of spiritual power and blessing. Be all very mechanical. All sorts of corruption can set in. So much power in the hands of so few. Appointments to office made over the heads of the people. No regard of their views or their tastes. Men foisted in congregations. Ministers forced on congregations. Regardless of their views or, 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 or their, 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 their teaching ability. And that happens, and that happened in the covenanting times in Scotland, and that's why there was such rebellion in the uh, congregations there. Here's the second way the church can be governed, is by a, a, a congregational church government. Now, this is the opposite end, whereby all power resides in the hand of the people. All decisions, great or small, must be approved by the majority of the people, and especially Convened Congregational meeting And under the system A special AGM As we call it Annual general meeting Can be called at any time So there could be a number Of annual general meetings Throughout the year It could be constant It could be continual Congregational meetings And the purpose of course Would be to resolve Every church's problem And and, uh, everyday church matters And uh, everyday church policy And and, and this form of church government can lead to arrest, uh, it can lead to dissension, it can lead to bad decisions, uh, and it's very difficult to get complete unity, especially if you have two or three hundred people saying, I think and I want. And the question comes down, what's the will of God? And it's very hard to discern among two or three hundred people. Now, the third way the church can be governed is Presbyterian church government. Now, that's what I subscribe to. That's what you subscribe to. That's why we're called the Free Presbyterian Church. We're free. We're outside the World Council of Churches. We have no trouble with the Irish Council of Churches, the ecumenical movement, the charismatic movement. We're Presbyterian. And what does that mean? It means all power resides in the people within the local congregation. And it's all done democratically in the mind and the will of the people. However, In Presbyterianism, the people delegate responsibility to those of their choice to represent them, to to serve them in the offices of the church. So take, for example, the calling of a minister. No bishop can come and impose a minister in the congregation. Not even the moderator could come down here and say to you, you must call such and such a man to be your minister, That minister can't be installed He can't be ordained Without being called at a Congregational meeting by The congregation That man must have the overwhelming Support and confidence of the Congregation and in our Presbytery a man Needs a two thirds majority Plus one so if you have 60 members He needs 40 of those members To vote for him at that meeting Plus one Now that's the minimum We aim to get more than that, but that's at least the minimum. And you see, the offices of the church are all filled in like manner. And that's what this congregational meeting is called for. This congregation will choose from among itself those whom they want to serve in the office of the elder and the office of the deacon. And it's all done in accord with the scriptures of truth. Turn over there to Acts chapter 6 for a moment. Acts chapter 6, here's the commencement of the office of the deacon. There was a problem in the church. Acts 6 verse 1, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. It says then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Look at verse 3. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you, underline that, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Do do you get the picture there? There's a dispute, a problem in the church. And how is it resolved? The apostles said, look ye out among you, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Notice the procedure. Here's the need for deacons. Well, they just didn't appoint seven men. Had they the power to do that, they could have had, but they didn't take that power to themselves. The apostles didn't do the picking. They said to the brethren, wherefore, brethren, look ye out from among you. The responsibility was left with the disciples in the church at Jerusalem. The the disciples made their choice. The congregation did the looking, did the the picking, did the choosing, and the apostles did the appointing. Now turn over there to 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. It says, this is a true saying, if a man desireth the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be. We'll pause there, right? Come down to verse 8. Likewise must the deacons. So here's two offices, the office of a bishop and the office of a deacon. Now if you Link this scripture up with Titus. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, he says, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou should have set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city, as I have appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly for a bishop, must be blameless. And notice the word bishop. Used in the same context of ordained elders You see the word presbyteros And the word episcopos, They're un- interchangeable In the New Testament Notice The elder and the deacon the, the reference to bishop is the same as an elder An elder is a bishop Elder is the man bishop's the office And then it says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10 And let these also first be proved so here's the picture the deacons and the elders were chosen by the people and then they're appointed and ordained by the leaders in the church So the church offices are all filled in a very democratic way. The elders serve the local congregation. The elders also represent the local congregation at presbytery level. And we, of course, in the Free Presbyterian Church, have got the general presbytery of the Free Presbyterian Church of Ulster. And our presbytery is the highest court within our denomination. And all the elders meet together to formulate the policy of the church government based on the Bible. And we run the church before the Lord, knowing that we're accountable to the Lord. So from the top to the bottom, from the presbytery level to the local level, we're all under then God's authority. Listen to what Paul says there in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. And the Holy Spirit assumes that we're all under authority. And I believe it's God's will for God's people to be in fellowship of a local church. under the authority and the guidance of godly leaders in that local church. Over there in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15, verse 1, and I would recommend this passage to you. It says in verse 1, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Here's a doctrinal issue. It says in verse 2, When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And it says in verse 6, and the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. That There's a form of collective government. The elders from the local church at Jerusalem gathered with others, and they formed a presbytery. And there was an interdependency between these congregations as far as the structure of government was concerned. And they all come in a very democratic way. The, the elder and they the, 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 the came to um, make a decision about this doctrinal matter that had to do with salvation. Can I just point out very quickly there's two types of elders. 1 Timothy five seventeen talks about especially they who labor in word and doctrine. There's a teaching elder. That's the minister of the church. Sometimes there's more than one in a large church. There could be two or three called the plurality of teaching elders. Then there's the ruling elder. Uh, and um, they're, they're to be given respect. They're to be treated with double honor. No, no, not, not because of who they are. Because remember, we're all sinners and we're saved by the grace of God. But because these men were chosen by the people And ordained before the Lord To serve the Lord That's why Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 and 1 Rebuke not an elder Those that were holding him in contempt And those that were speaking against him And saying hurtful things These elders were not to be talked down to Or despised These elders would be approached They were to carry out their duties with humility And what of his sins Well, he was rebuked in the presence of two or three witnesses, 1 Timothy 5, verse 19. Because he labors too to give an account before God. And that's the specifics of Presbyterian church government. Now, let me finish this morning. I want you to think of the spirituality of Presbyterian church government. Because these men, whether they're teaching elders, ruling elders, or deacons, these men must be saved by the grace of God. Before they can serve the Lord, they must be saved. Jesus said, marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again, John chapter 3, verse 7. And the elders, minister, the deacons, they must profess to be saved. They must be able to stand up and give a word of testimony. And they may do it with fear and trembling. They may do it with a few stammering words. But they have to be able to give a a word of testimony. That there was a time and a day in their life when they came to know Christ as Lord and Savior. So let me press that home. Not only applies to them, but it applies to you who are listening to the word of God. You too need to be saved. You too need to acknowledge your sinnership. You need to repent of your sin and receive Christ as Lord and Savior because the Bible says neither is there salvation in any other for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And before a man can serve the Lord, he must be saved by the grace of God and be able, as I've said, to give testimony. Secondly, in the spirituality of Presbyterian church government, the man has to be spiritual. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says there in verse 6, Not a novice. In other words, not a beginner. Not someone who's just recently got saved. Not a beginner in spiritual matters. He has to be a man of some degree of experience. A man of wisdom. A man of grace. A man who can deal with practical matters. There has to be a a, a spirituality about him. Let me tell you something else about him. He has to be a stout-hearted man. Mention here is in the context of ruling one's own house, being married, having children. And it says, moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into reproach and the stare of the devil. He's got to be respected by family, by friends, even by his foes. You see, coming to the house of God and being in the local fellowship of God's people, it's not just a tie of convenience that this individual is engaging in. This man has a, a big impact at a personal level. He has a desire to serve God. You see, if you worship God, you will also want to serve God. The two are linked together and you'll want to further the cause of Jesus Christ. And you'll not be a free Presbyterian by convenience. You'll be a free Presbyterian by conviction. And you'll be characterized by faithfulness and and, and loyalty and and love to Jesus Christ. And all the major decisions that take place in your life, you'll stand by the stuff and truth of God. You'll stand up for the cause of Christ You'll stand up for the Christ of God. You will display a certain amount of stickability. And that means morning and evening when the Lord's day comes, you'll be in your place for worship because worship is ordained of God. And because you're a saved man and you have a degree of spirituality and you want to display that stickability and stout-heartedness, then you will be here and you'll present yourself before the Lord as the Lord gives help and the Lord gives enablement. I'm going to leave it there today. We're going to deal with the office of elder and the office of deacon over the next two weeks. And we'll open up the scriptures a wee bit more and begin to learn as to what God requires and the type of men that God calls for.